0: Welcome to part two of our episode on effective patient communication. This time around, we're going to be talking about the difficult patient and specific strategies we can use to make their outcome better and to make our lives easier in the emergency department. We're also going to talk about the difficult situation of breaking bad news, as well as the importance of good discharge instructions. So without further ado, here's Dr. Walter Himmel, Dr. Jean-Pierre Champagne, and Nurse Anne Shook on effective patient communication and dealing with the difficult patient. We're going to move on now to the difficult patient. And the first difficult patient I'd like to present is the hostile, aggressive patient. So here's a case. A 56-year-old woman has an episode of dizziness followed by syncope while at work. She's being investigated for, quote, heart issues by her family physician. She's transported to the ED via EMS and placed in a monitored bed. On exam, she's alert and oriented, and her vital signs are stable. The ECG is negative. The nurse does his usual assessment, draws blood work, and places an IV. The patient's husband arrives in the ED after leaving his workplace approximately 45 minutes later and presents to the department in an obvious state of anxiousness and near panic. Upon finding out that his wife has not been assessed by the doctor, he becomes hostile and aggressive in his body language, as well as stating, if someone doesn't look after my wife right now, there's gonna be big problems around here and someone's gonna pay. So physicians are humans. They may get frustrated, angry, and upset when faced with a particularly difficult patient counter-transference, that feeling you get of being totally drained after interviewing a depressed patient for a while, for example, that most of us learned about on our psych rotations, happens all the time, so it's natural for us to get frustrated with difficult patients. But there's ways to manage these frustrations that will enrich our professional lives and prevent your department from coming apart at the seams and in the long term preventing burnout. You may have heard the saying that there are three types of people in the world. The ones who make things happen, the ones who watch things happen, and the ones who say, what just happened? Which do you see yourself as? Proactive living requires preparation, optimism, and competence. Reactive living, on the other hand, usually overreactive or impulsive communication, requires no preparation, no optimism, and no skill. However, the price you pay is often considerable. You have at least three choices in any challenging job or conflict. You can put up with it, you can leave it, or you can manage it. Generally, the last option is best. So Dr. Himmel, what happens when we have impaired communication with our difficult patients? Rather than start with how can we deal with our difficult patients? Let's first start off with what happens if things go bad with our difficult patients? And how does that happen?
1: The natural response to being attacked is to counter-attack. The natural response to being yelled at is to yell back. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth produces a blind and toothless society. Now there's old Chinese proverb that says, in a moment of anger you will produce a lifetime of misery. That's natural. Look at the world around us today and we'll see what natural behavior is. Before cities and towns and language and civilizations, it was all about survival. Fight or flight, that was it. So we're hardwired for fight or flight. In the absence of preparation, you're dead. The only way to deal with hostile patients is preparation and practice well in advance. If you haven't planned in mind what you're going to do, it's like doing a cricothyroidotomy, or fixing a broken bone when you haven't got a clue what you're doing—it's simply impossible. So I think that's the starting point. Dealing with difficult people are, are skills. Now, in the absence of skills, what happens is a negative interaction cycle: attack, counterattack, attack, counterattack. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. Someone better look out of my take care of my relative, or else. Who do you think you're threatening? Next thing you're calling security. You've lost the battle. This is what I call normal. So the the first skill in dealing with difficult people is everything I'm about to say is counterintuitive. Everything I'm about to say is absolutely unnatural unless you were born a saint. There's the occasional rare person who was born a saint. they are far and few between. <laughs> Jean-Pierre is one. Stop. They, absolutely. But they don't exist. I'm sure that one of them. So I'm going to have to go a little theoretical here. The first question you have to ask yourself is, what does this mean to me? In plain words, are you taking this personally? If the event that you're walking into means you're being attacked, insulted, embarrassed, mistreated, abused, uh, you're going to act the way that assaulted, abused, mistreated people act badly. It's not going to work. So the first skill is get yourself under control. Now, there's a fantastic book called "Getting Past No," published by the Harvard Negotiation Project. Where it goes through step by step what do you do, and the first thing to say is "Don't react." Now, how in the world do you do that? Well, first of all, don't show up to a shift exhausted and tired. Like you're gonna you're gonna have a bad day if that happens. Secondly, be prepared. Probably one person in ten, one person in twenty is truly hostile. Probably. Every patient in the emergency department is frightened. So, per shift, if you're seeing 20 patients or 25 patients, you're going to have one bad encounter. Absolutely predictable. If one shift you see none, the next shift you're going to see two. So, accept the reality, deal with life as it is, not as you wish it would be. So, what do I do? Number one, I go, hmm, this is going to be a difficult encounter. I've got to give it meaning. And the meaning is going to be A, it's part of my job description. B, a test. How good am I managing this? C, I want to have a happy life. I have to manage this. D, it's okay. I accept what's about to happen. So I, I think those are the starting points. And <clears throat> the absence of a, a desire to do this, in the absence of a goal you set, and the absence of feeling there's meaning to what you're about to do, it's absolutely unmanageable. And this sounds overwhelming, but I think you have to think about all these issues before you even start trying to manage difficult people, especially for the kind of person who tends to get hostile.
2: You need to know what your own triggers are. We all have triggers, you know, a patient, a, a comment, a, a behavior that can set us off. We all have those. And it's knowing what those are and going, I'm not going to be able to change because I'm dealing with people. So so inevitably, I'm going to come across this. But having the awareness that, okay, so this is setting off my my number one trigger. All right, take a moment. Take a moment to reflect, acknowledge it, and then proceed. And I think understanding that the hostile patient, we, we need to remember that these patients, I like to say, these patients are emotionally hijacked. So they have narrow focus. They're, they're not thinking, they're reacting. And... You kind of you have to give them time. You are very upset right now. And I want to help you through this. But maybe we need to give it a bit of time and I'm going to come back in about five minutes or ten minutes. But I'm here for you and we're going to help you.
3: I start at the point of this is not them. This is not their, their normal selves. There's a reason why they're like this. It's my job to figure out what that is. And I also have a firm belief but there's no way I'm going to argue with someone. There's I, I I sincerely believe that we can all go our careers without, and I mean the sincere like I, this is no word of lie. Without a single argument, I believe that is attainable. And so right away I, I I realize that this person is not really wanting to act this way unless they're a complete jerk, and that's a, that's a different story as well. But for Absolutely. the va- for the vast majority of people, they don't want to be acting this way. There's a reason why. And as soon as I understand their their perspective and where they're coming from, that will diffuse the situation entirely. So that's
0: getting back to their agenda. Absolutely. And framing things in terms of questions for them. Absolutely.
2: Peeling back layers. Yeah.
0: Okay, so let's talk then about the nitty-gritty techniques we can use. So, Walter, when you know you're going into a difficult situation, you're going to prepare yourself. Now you're in front of the patient.
1: Okay. So They're yelling and screaming. So I said to myself, I'm alive, I'm alert, I feel good. I said to myself, people need love when they deserve it the least. I said to myself, this will pass. I said to myself, I want to go and feeling good, energetic, make a good income, have a good sex life. I don't have a few chocolate declarers, take up drinking again or smoking. I, I say all those things to myself. So number one, body language.
0: So th- this is fascinating stuff because we always think about, well, we've got to deal with this hostile, aggressive patient they're the problem that we have to fix. And so far, pretty much all we've talked about is how you can,
1: Uh, how you yourself can reflect on yourself and prepare yourself. You can never change people directly. You can only change yourself. People's behavior will change as you change yourself. And you have one element that you can use, the element of surprise. The element of being counterintuitive. People who are fighters like to fight. People who are killers like to kill. Don't play their game. See so heroes? So talk yourself is crucial. Now if your brain is saying this person's ridiculous, I'm gonna call security, they're nasty, how dare they? I predict total failure. Absolutely. So self-talk's important. Step number two, you've got to get the patient under control. You've got to get their family under control indirectly. How do you do it? Well, step number one was control yourself. Step number two is non control. Verbal communication. You don't want road rage. The first thing to introduce yourself: "Hello, I am Walter Himmel." Well, of course, you're not going to say Walter Himmel. You're going to use your own name. You put your hand out. Sometimes I wish I was just going to say
0: and say, "I'm Walter Himmel." <laughs> yeah. That would be awesome. But, uh...
1: I'm Jean Pierre Champagne. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nonverbal communication. You want to communicate open posture. This is counterintuitive. I'm going to put your hand out, counterintuitive.
0: So all the things we were saying before about the techniques My we name can is, use I'm with Dr. all James. patients, right. we should be using those same sort of techniques even Absolutely. with hostile aggressive patients. Now
1: let's say the person refuses to shake your hand. No problem. They have lost their authority and their moral power over you. The moment someone you offer a hand and they reject it, it weakens their anger. They begin to get embarrassed. It may take a few minutes. Watch your tone. Be quietly and speak softly. The louder they speak, the quieter you speak because we tend to resonate with each other. If they raise their voice and you raise your voice, it's gonna produce louder and louder arguments. Lower your tone. Look them in the eye for three to five seconds and absolutely at all times stop the road range, address them by their name. Address them by their name is absolute must. Because once you personalize it, they can have a hard time counterattacking you. Then you've got to make your intentions absolutely clear. So what do you do? The same steps of reflective listening. You echo what they say, or you paraphrase it by they say. Now, let me tell you how you paraphrase it. And for some, this is gonna be absolutely unbelievably difficult and counterintuitive. If you say, so- I can see you're very concerned about your spouse or significant other. You want to be brilliant? I can see you're concerned about your loved one. I can see you're angry. You've been here a long time. I can see you're concerned about your spouse and you're fearful. I can see why you feel that way. Now, uh, be quite frank. You've got to have these lines and these scripts prepared in advance. Because once the attack starts, it's too late. You have to script it in advance. It's too counterintuitive. So I would say, hello, I'm Dr. Himmel. You are. Nice to meet you. If you can say it, if you can't say it, I can see you're concerned. Your spouse's been here a long time. What's your biggest fear?
0: So here's a review so far on how to deal with the difficult patient. First, be prepared. Note that this is counterintuitive and goes against people's natural reactions to difficult people. Number one, take personal emotional control. Don't react. Be well rested before your shift. Realize that one in 20 patients will be difficult patients. Tell yourself, this is going to be a difficult situation, but I can handle it and give it meaning. Know your triggers and acknowledge when your buttons get pushed. Say to yourself, people need love when they deserve it least and chant to yourself, I'm alert, I'm alive, I feel good. You have to have a positive attitude going into this. Number two, help your patients get emotional control. This is where the nonverbal communication is important. All the things we talked about in the first part of this episode. Smile, introduce yourself, address them by their name to personalize the situation, extend your hand out, speak softly with low tones and an open posture, sit down if it's safe, look the patient in the eye for three to five seconds, but avoid staring, which can come across as aggressive. Thirdly, there's the verbal reflective listening. Don't argue. Search for their agenda. Echo and paraphrase what they say. Acknowledge their feelings. Things like, I can see that you're angry, or I can see that you're very concerned. I can see how you feel that way. I can see that you care deeply about your loved one, etc. Next, we're going to talk about three strategies you can use if things aren't going so well. The broken record technique. Silence and acting dumb. So let's say you've tried some of these techniques, but the patient is still being hostile and aggressive. What's your sort of second tier of tactics to use once you've tried that, and like you said, the vast majority of people uh, will settle down after that first tier of maneuvers. What if that doesn't work? What's your second line?
1: It doesn't go well the first time, use a broken record technique. What's your biggest fear? I can see you're upset. I can see why you feel that way. Uh, I will say in the vast majority of cases, within about 30, 40, 50 seconds, two minutes at the most, the explosion's over. On the other hand, if you don't do this, in about two years, it's still happening. So the broken record
0: technique involves validating their feelings again and again until it diffuses the situation. The last thing we think of in terms of being a good, effective emergency physician is being dumb. But, Dr. Himmel, I understand that you have this technique where you act like you're dumb in order to effectively calm down a hostile, aggressive patient. Yes.
1: Yeah, so the best way not to get manipulated, the best way to not get insulted is don't recognize what's going on. Don't go on with the game. Pretend you don't get the game. Most people who are bulls or aggressive are bulls or aggressive because it works. Most victims of aggression know the game. They're the victim of aggression and they give in. So acting them is a very good technique. Now, acting them is not necessary when you've introduced yourself, the person has calmed down, you've had a connection. Acting them is inappropriate when it's dangerous. You call security or you get help.
0: So can you give us an so example of, of when you might use this acting dumb technique?
1: Yeah, sure. So let's look at this angry person. Let's say they've uh, calmed down, and now they're into a threatening mode.
0: So with our case that we said, you know, if someone's going to pay yeah, around here. Yeah, are threatening,
1: or... someone's going to pay. You guys haven't got a clue what you're talking about. This, what kind of hospital is this? Okay, i been say, pardon? You don't say, I know what you mean. You don't counterattack. Don't threaten them. Don't feel selfish. You look at them with a blank look on your face and say, pardon? They'll probably drop it. If they don't, they'll say, I told you, you're a dummy. This place is ridiculous. The care is terrible. You guys don't know what you're doing. Just you they're quiet and look at them and say, pardon? Another thing that you might say when you're being attacked is, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Another thing you might say is, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to tell me. Another thing you might say is, help me understand what you're trying to tell me. There's different phrases. Pardon, help me understand, tell me what you mean, explain to me what you're looking for. These are silly questions. Now, you and I basically know exactly what's going on. We know what the game is. It's manipulation. It's insulting. So you want to reframe it. You want to change it. Because you don't want to deal with the positional arguments. You want to deal with the interests you don't go along. Acting that means don't go along. Don't tell them you know what they're doing. Pretend you really haven't got a clue what's going on. Why does it work? Because the attacker begins to realize his techniques, which have always worked, aren't working right now. And move on to the next technique or it'll burn itself out. Let me tell you not the way to do it. Look at someone saying, that's not going to work. You're trying to manipulate me. Well, you just realized you know what's going on. That doesn't work. It's all about subtlety. It's all about subliminal communication. If I put in a general term, here's what I would say. Don't say the obvious. Be creative. Stating the obvious is ineffectual. So acting dumb means asking clarifying questions. For answers, you already know. You just want to change the mode of what the patient's doing from attacking, from defensiveness to problem solving. And you can't just do it by saying, I want to solve this problem with people who are aggressive, violent, out of control, or feel misunderstood.
0: I can imagine some of our listeners might be thinking acting dumb might come over to the patient as being sarcastic and actually being aggressive. If, you know, for example, in the inflection of the voice that I'm about to say, um, what do you mean? I don't know what you're talking about. You know, that kind of sounds almost aggressive in a way. Well, what Uh, what can Albert
1: Morabian say? 55% 55% the visuals, 38% the tone. Let's so, face it, you've got to be in synchrony with yourself. You've got to give a consistent message. If the tone is off, if your body language is off, if your lips are tight, your eyes are closed tightly, your palms are down, your arms are folded across your chest, if you're leaning forward. Your hands are on your chest. You're yelling loudly. Forget it. Remember, you got to get every number of the phone number correct. If one is wrong, it's not going to work. Now, if you haven't got the body language right, and if you haven't got the tone right, if you're feeling very hostile and you aren't talking it to yourself, if your brain is saying this guy's a total SOB, uh, don't use this technique. This technique is only used if you can be calm and placid and quiet. you got to get all the steps right. You're putting a central line in somebody. You're putting a fully catheter in somebody. you got to get every step right. This is why preparation doesn't make perfect. Perfect preparation makes perfect.
0: Every step counts. So for some of us, this is something we have to practice, just like we have to practice putting in the central line. So far in our second-line techniques for dealing with a difficult patient, we've talked about the broken record technique, and we've talked about acting dumb. Now Dr. Himmel will talk about the third and last technique, which
1: is silence. The last step is total silence and get help. And help may be another physician, another nurse, two physicians, or getting another person to come in. Generally speaking, if another person comes in at that point, the patient or the family has calmed down they get a fresh start
0: how is silence effective in helping an aggressive patient calm down
1: well, there's a few things number one you're never going to regret the speech you never gave <laughs> right better to be accused of being dumb or silent than being quote something you're going to regret saying So, a place of silence number two how long can somebody in a public forum scream and yell and threaten 10 seconds 20 seconds 30 seconds 60 seconds there's a the point to sit there quietly and taking it because eventually they'll burn themselves down. When you punch someone in the head at a bar, they want to get punched back. It goes back and forth. It'll stop. What's the exception? A totally drug-crazed insane person. They'll kill you. In a hospital, unless you're that degree of danger, and hopefully they'll recognize that, they'll burn out in about 60 or 70 seconds at the most. What do you do then? You either leave and get help or you take a big breath and say, Mr. So-and-so, I can see you're very upset. I can see why you feel that way. So during my moment of silence, I'm planning plan A and plan B. Plan A is I'm going to leave and get help. Plan B is I'm talking to myself saying, what am I going to say when this ends? And I may give one last try. I can see you're very upset. I can see why you feel that way. I got to tell you, in 10 years, How often have I called security? Maybe once or twice.
0: So one of the things I've read about when dealing with difficult patients is reframing and redirecting. That is asking questions and giving the patient options. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you go about doing that, how it works?
1: Yeah, so reframing or redirecting is about identifying the interests rather than the position. Let me explain that. The position is, I'm going to sue you. Reframing is the interest. The person's major interest isn't suing you. That's not why they came to the hospital. So you have to reframe it, which means, what is their real interest? So I would say, I look at them, and rather than deal with the suing issue. I'm going to avoid that totally and say, I can see your concern about your relative. What's your major concern now? And of course, always state your intent. And this takes practice and preparation. And here's how it goes. We're on the same team. Or I'm here to do what's in your wife's interest. Or I can see your concern about your loved one. Let's help her. So reframing means Figure out your interests. And the other brilliant, brilliant approach is say to the person, I need your help. There's a tremendous social prerogative in our society. When you say to somebody, I need your help, they're going to give you your help. This is an expression I hear used all the time. It's brilliant, it's effective, it's honest. And it goes like this. I need you to sit down. I need you to answer a few easy questions. I need you to... Help me understand what the problem is. I need you to help me help you. I need you to is a great term. The other great method of communication was described by a guy called Robert Cialdini in his famous book on persuasion. Give the patient a trait that the patient may or may not have. Give the trait that they may or may not have. When you attribute your trait to them, they'll adopt it. What did Luke Skywalker say to Darth Vader? He says to Darth Vader, I can see there's goodness in you. Of course, Darth Vader was a total prick, right? But Luke Skywalker says, I can see there's goodness in you. And he found goodness. It's a famous scene from a war movie where the cowards are about to do something ridiculously bad and get everybody killed. And the captain says, Find your courage right now. Attribute the trait.
0: So, reframing is about finding out the patient's real agenda or their interests rather than their position. The line, I need your help, can go a long way to redirecting the difficult patient. And giving the patient a trait that they may or may not have, like Luke Skywalker telling Darth Vader, I can see there's goodness in you, can help direct the patient towards a solution focused outcome. Now, what Dr. Himmel's about to explain is truly inspirational in my opinion.
1: It's all about the meaning. Viktor Frankl wrote a book called A Search of Meaning. If you give something the right meaning, you can withstand anything. What is the meaning of what's happening? Give yourself the meaning, give your patient the meaning. If the meaning is you're being abused, walked over and insulted, you even get help. If the meaning is your life is in danger, call security. If the meaning is, this is a bad encounter, then I would say, be a hero and deal with it. Use metacognition, meta-emotion. Think about thinking, think about feeling, see yourself as what you have the potential to be, a leader and nothing less. If you can get through kindergarten, public school, high school, nursing school, medical school, you can get through all the crap you've got to get through, you can become a leader. You can choose to become a hero. Once you give it that meaning, once you see the encounter as an opportunity to become a hero, you will become a hero. You'll transform your life and the entire department. This may sound airy-fairy, almost unbelievable, but be quite frank. I do this. I teach this every day. And it's highly effective. Am I successful every day? No. Some days I'm irritable, not well-rested. I know it's going to be a bad day. I watch myself, and I have to be really on guard. Other days, it's easy. Raise your standards high. Give it meaning. But you can give nothing meaning in the absence of realism. What does realism mean? There will be bad days. There will be horrible people. There will be suffering. If you can't accept that, if you can't accept the fact there is no Santa Claus, then you're suffering from what Albert Ellis called irrational beliefs. Irrational beliefs will destroy your life. There is no Santa Claus. There will be bad days. Life isn't always fair. I hate to be tough about it, but I'm going to state this very toughly. Accept the truth and you'll transcend it. Here's what Carl Jung said, the famous psychoanalyst. All the greatest the most important problems of life are fundamentally unsolvable. All the greatest and most important problems of life are fundamentally unsolvable. They only fade. They only fade when confronted with a new and stronger passion. In my opinion, this is your minimal requirement for dealing with difficult people. But I will tell you, if you're easy on yourself, life will be tough on you. If you're tough on yourself, life will be extremely easy on you. Be tough on yourself up front and it's going to be a beautiful day. Be easy on yourself then you better be lucky. Because if you're not lucky, you're in serious trouble.
0: We gave you the three second line techniques in dealing with the difficult patient, the broken record technique, acting dumb, and silence, as well as how to reframe, redirect, and give meaning to the situation. Next, we'll hear from Nurse Shook about what she does when she's called in to help with a difficult patient encounter gone bad. So, Anne, you're often called into situations that haven't gone well. How do you generally handle these situations when someone's been hostile, aggressive, The first pass hasn't worked. Perhaps security's been called, perhaps not, but it's gotten out of control. How do you handle those situations?
2: So I walk in and I introduce myself and I, you know, I contact everyone who is in the room and basically state, I understand there has been some concerns and that there has been maybe a rough go here and I'd like to help. How can I help? Tell me what's happened. And in doing that, I'm not biased, and that there's, you know, their side of the story and what has occurred, and that I'm here, and I'm going to take time, and I'm going to hear it, and I'm going to hear you out.
0: Mm-hmm. So often it's a matter of the patient just hasn't been heard, because they might have come in in an explosive manner, and everyone's been against them and aggressive. Right, we
2: maybe have acted defensively. defensively. Right, Okay. And I find once you say you, you're genuine in saying, I'm here, I want to hear your side. Let's 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 work together, you can see the tide slowly change and you can see people and their tone and the level of aggression just slowly ebbs. It's about giving them time. And I think that's what is so pivotal about my role is I do have that time to sit with a patient and a family member more so than the physician, more more so than the primary nurse. I can take that half an hour and give them my undivided attention and say, hey, we are here to help you. It seems that we got off on the wrong foot. And how can we make this better moving forward? Because at the end of the day, it's about getting you the right care or it's about giving the right care to your loved one. And that's what we're here to do.
3: You know, by the way, there is, there's one other little detail that I find that helps in these situations. And I'm sorry if this is a bit of a non sequitur here. But much in the same way, this, this gets back to sort of the normal, the normal abnormal pattern of behavior when someone's upset, like Walter said multiple times, if something lasts longer than 30 seconds, 60 seconds, 2 minutes. Clearly, this is an abnormal scenario of hostile behavior. And the one thing is that, you know, normal people don't normally act like this those same people at some point will say, I'm sorry, in the midst of their screed. They'll, they'll be enraged, they'll be screaming, and they'll say something like, I'm sorry, but I'm concerned and whatnot. The moment that they say that sorry, there's an opportunity to end the hostility right there. And I find that this has worked 100% of the time. What you say in that moment is, don't apologize. You're upset. Let me hear what you have to say.
0: One last thing we haven't talked about is ending the patient encounter with action. So Jean-Pierre, could you tell us about how you want to end these interactions, what the best, most effective way of ending an interaction with a hostile, aggressive patient so that the patient will stay calm and the rest of your shift will be a happy one?
3: Right, right. So once you've done all of this work and you've reached a point where you've reached some sort of common ground and now you're able to communicate functionally, the last step is a plan for action both of you need to be clear on in terms of what the next steps are, what the actions are going to be. So as soon as you step out of the room, there's a clear understanding as to what's going to transpire next. There's not going to be some sort of nebulous, I'll be back when I'm back. Because all of that work, though everything that you've you've tried to establish can easily dissolve if that specific plan isn't in place. And there's always the chance that the person can escalate again. Once you have a plan in place, that is also something to which you can refer if indeed there is a breakdown of communication again. Mr. Jones, this is what we talked about. We're going to do this, and we're going to do that, and then the next step is this. And that will bring you back to that exact point of where you finally bridged that gap between the two of you. If these efforts, if this communication doesn't resolve into a specific tangible plan of action, then unfortunately all of your efforts have really been for naught.
1: Here's what a surgeon said at one of the hospitals I used to work at. A plan... Without action, a plan without action or execution is a daydream. Action without a plan is a nightmare. The plan is: your wife needs a couple of blood tests. We're going to get a cardiogram. We'll check her blood pressure again. Maybe a chest X-ray. Then reevaluate things. Your plan is: let's get a room and let's figure this out. You got to get a plan and get some agreement. And of course, always state your intent again. Right after their x-ray and their blood work, which, you know, is going to take a couple hours to get back. We'll chat again.
0: Before we leave the hostile, aggressive patient we do need to talk about the patient that you feel threatened by, the violent patient or the crazed psychotic patient.
1: You might be dealing with a truly dangerous person. You might be dealing with someone on drugs, someone who's psychotic, or a psychopath. You might be dealing with a bull who's totally beyond control and is truly dangerous. So I would say if you're feeling personally threatened and you no longer know what to do at that point, you basically say, excuse me, and you walk away and you get help. Now, there's two kinds of helps. You can get a colleague and both come together because two or three colleagues are often better than one. And quite frankly, if you truly feel threatened, there's only one person you can possibly call. I'll tell you who it is. Four security agents. There is a place for that.
2: Absolutely. And if
1: you're going to call four security agents, don't tell them what you're going to do. Don't say, if you can't get your under control and call security, do not do that. That's how you're going to get wiped out. Yeah, that's a threat. It's dangerous. Here's what you do. You say, excuse me. And you get four security agents. There's a place for that. Now, I'll be quite frank. My mum, who's passed away now, was quite ill about four or five years ago. I'll summarize it in 15 seconds. Acre fibrillation, cold foot, sitting in a waiting room at a pretty famous hospital for six hours with a cold foot, acre fibrillation. And I wasn't very happy about it. So I started complaining and I got quite hostile because I was getting nowhere. Let me think, the next thing I heard was the following, three security agents to emerge now. Uh, That was just to get a hold of me, by the way. Hmm. And they appeared and they were very antagonistic. Lines such as, are you telling me what to do with my job? Your mother's already been assessed. So I've been the recipient of that kind of behavior. I was seen as a hostile enemy of the team. Which I don't see as the case at all. So I, I've been victimized by that. But if someone is truly dangerous, you, you call it security.
0: So that's all we're going to say about the hostile aggressive patient. Next, we're going to throw out a case of the very anxious patient. This is a 40 year old woman who presents to your ED with a three year history of pain all over her body. She appears very anxious and repeatedly tells you that she feels like she's going to die and that you have to do something to help her. You notice that this is her 48th visit to your emergency department. So Jean-Pierre, what are some of the things going through your head in terms of when you pick up that chart, you know, most of us will roll our eyes thinking, oh, this patient's had pain for three years, there's nothing we can do for her, she's been here a million times, why is she here again? What are some of the things that are going through your mind in how you might be able to help this patient?
3: Right. So I I first of all acknowledge that this could end up being very painful. (laughs) This could be a very challenging case right now. What's evident right off the bat is... Is that this doesn't make sense? I, th- I think sometimes in medicine we get so focused on evidence and skills and tubing this and that that often we just stop or forget to ask if a presentation makes sense. And this person who's had multiple dozens upon dozens of visits for this chronic type symptomatology, that just doesn't make sense. And right off the bat, like even before you go in the room, recognizing that is important. And the implication is that there's likely another agenda involved. There's some other other than face value why they're here. So that's probably the the big preparation that I have and anticipate that this conversation could become challenging, but also to check your own emotions at the door, because it would be so easy to go in judging this person right from the word go. This person, I've never met them before, but oh, it's them again. Even though I've never known them, I've never met them before. And then, you know what I do? I go in, I sit down, I introduce myself, call me Jean-Pierre. What brings you in? And you know what? I listen to their story. I listen to what they have to tell me. I ask my probing questions. But probably, more likely than not, early on, I'm going to bring up the fact, you know what? It says here right on the chart, this is your 48th time having to come to the emergency department. You know, that makes me concerned. I'm sure you must be concerned as well. What is it that you're concerned about? I think Walter's line is, what's your greatest fear? That is a card that has to be played in this in this scenario. And I bet that will bring out so much information within even a f- the first few moments. And that would be my first initial approach to this person.
1: Some of the biggest mistakes I've made in life was to walk into a room with a presupposition that the diagnosis has already been made. Because one thing you have to realize, when somebody comes in with their 10th visit being short of breath, or your 20th visit with chest pain, it is possible it's a P.E., or a myocardial ischemia of some sort. I think we have to recognize that. Mm-hmm. Fight the resistance to label people. And for me, it's a fight because I label just as much as the next person. And then there's a branch point. If you say the person has to be investigated because you're a genius, and you figure out something else, something, something else didn't, or this is new, you have to investigate.
0: Let's say this patient, uh, you've decided there's no immediate medical problem that needs to be addressed at least in the emergency department, and you've decided that this patient has, say, a generalized anxiety disorder. What are you going to tell the patient? Well, let me get it's, that... it's their 48th visit for similar problems. No one's really addressed it before. And from talking to her, you're quite sure that this is likely a generalized anxiety disorder, and that's what keeps on bringing her back to the emergency department. What kind of things do you, so do you tell So you've got her? To
1: ask for permission, to be frank. Is it possible there's, you're depressed about something? Is it possible there's something difficult in your life that's going on? You may open up a kettle of worms about abuse, I mean, God knows what, and sometimes we just don't want to do it. But I would often ask for, I will test the waters to see what they're prepared to deal with. And if they do, if there's zero uptake or resentment, I will back off. I will not judge. I'll plant an idea. I'll test the waters. If they're receptive, I'll come up with a few suggestions. I'll give them a plan where to go next. But I'm not going to shrug my shoulders, say, I don't know, say, so you've been a million times, there's nothing wrong with you. I will never play the nothing wrong with you card. And the other card I don't play, and this is just my opinion, is I do not play the card, I'm an eMERGE doctor, my job in life is to make sure nothing's going to kill you. That has never been my philosophy. Now, that's the philosophy of some, and I don't respect or disrespect it. It's an option. Some people play that card. I'm a cardiologist, your heart's fine. I'm a gastroenterologist, your constipation is normal. I'm an doctor. you don't think wrong is going to kill you. See your doctor by. So I, I take a more of a holistic approach, which is the illness you have doesn't fall this in this that category. They may say, how sure are you? I said as sure as anybody could reasonably could be rationally be. And then I, I give them a plan or option what the next step should be. That's not to say that if it's gone reasonably well, and you've connected well, that you not take an education process and say, you know, if you had a similar event again, you, you might consider calling your doctor or make a appointment to see them. It might be more helpful. It might save you some time. It might be a better use of your time.
3: You know, the one thing that hasn't come up in our conversation, but I don't think there's ever a role for the emergency physician to judge the validity of someone's decision to come to the emergency department. You can think it. And you can judge it internally if you want, because I'm sure we always do. But there's zero constructive outcome to voicing that. It doesn't change the fact that they're there, you're there, so move forward.
0: The next topic in this episode is breaking bad news. I'm going to throw out a case. This is a case that I had in my first year of practice that I'll never forget. A family, including two young parents and an infant girl, was involved in a motor vehicle crash. The father who was driving made a left turn and the car got T-boned on the passenger side at 100 kilometers an hour. They all arrived at the community hospital single coverage emergency department. The father had minor injuries and the mother coded on arrival in the ED and she died under my care. The infant girl survived but was critically ill and transferred out to the nearest pediatric tertiary care center. Now it was time to speak to the father who has a dead wife and a critically ill infant. And let's say you were the emergency doc in this situation and you were taking care of this family what would you say to the father who just lost his wife and almost lost his child? What strategies can you give our listeners in order to deal with these very emotional situations?
2: If I was a physician, I think I would have social work and possibly a nurse come with me, getting somewhere private, comfortable, and, you know, asking, Mr. Smith, you were involved in a car crash. Tell me what you know about what's gone on since you've arrived here. Once I've asked him, what do you understand about the situation uh, since your arrival to to the emergency department, Um, and I realize he does not know the situation with his wife, her death, or his infant being critically ill. It is about sitting down, eye contact, and for me, I would say, Mr. Smith, I have some terrible news. Your wife died in the crash, and your daughter is critically ill. And we've transported her to another facility that can deal with her injuries. Most people that I have dealt with are like, don't beat around the bush. Tell me what's going on. So that is a practice that I have adopted, is to be upfront and gentle as possible, but to get it out sooner than later. You need to know that. And Mm -hmm. the more we dance around it, I think the more it shows that we're uncomfortable and we are the ones that need to be the strength for this gentleman right now. Mm -hmm. So I think it's about not being around the bush.
0: So one of the techniques is to go through step by step of what's happened, because I've had the experience where I jump straight in and say, plain, clear language, this is the situation. And then the family freaks out. If you can quickly go through the steps of what happened and get to the outcome fairly quickly, then I think there's a little bit of a buffer there. It gets them a little bit of an understanding, okay, well, well what led to it? Your wife came in, she had a cardiac arrest on arrival. Okay. We went through the I protocols, see. and unfortunately we lost her, she's, she's dead. Well, it's
1: very subtle. You don't want to tell them in the first quarter of a second. You don't want to tell them after two minutes. That's way too long. Right. Right, So somewhere between a quarter second and two minutes is the right time. It depends partly on you and partly on the person. I would say sooner rather than later, often by five or ten seconds, I'm so-and-so, you've been involved in a very bad accident. So I, I preface it by that's some very bad news. What you're saying is prepare yourself if you're going to get some bad news. If some is really bad and some is just bad, I'll give them the just bad news first. I said, your daughter's still alive. She's very ill, but she's alive. And I pause. I think you have to give three, four, or five more sentences and pause for five, ten seconds.
0: Let the patient react.
1: Pause. They Let have the, to take it in. It they got to think. They have to look at your face. I've heard patients complain months later about a doctor and says they looked like they weren't concerned. They weren't even sweating. They weren't even upset. Like, be human. When I was in family practice and 13 Emerge, I've seen many patients come back a month later, a year later, two years later, to say, that was a terrible event, but the doctor was nice. That was a terrible event, but the staff was great. Or they've said, that was a terrible event and the staff sucked. Like, they will remember that moment forever. I will not go through, we did this and we did CPR and then we gave drugs and then we did CPR and they we inch. Like, no, no, no. Because uh, you're building a false hope there. I never say, I know how you feel. Never. Never. Better to say, I'm sorry. It was a terrible thing. And quite frankly, those words will last the rest of your life.
3: The process of breaking bad news, though, really should be considered a, a technique, a skill. Truly no different than putting someone's shoulder back in or, you know, criking someone in the throes of it. You have to be good at that skill. And there's one mnemonic that spikes, S-P-I-K-E-S. And the first one is, so S is setting, finding the right setting in which to provide this information. Two, it's understanding the perception, the patient's perception of how serious or what is actually happening right now. I, which is odd, which is the oddest one, it's, it's getting an invitation from the patient to provide them information and i think this scenario is quite dramatic but sometimes there are certain situations where the person with whom you are you're talking doesn't want to know <laughs> what's happening i know that sounds odd but there are clearly and i've been in that situation before where i've i've actually said something like are you the sort of person who would like to know all the details no i do not and so that changes what you can do and then K is where you actually share your knowledge, the medical facts. And of course, this doesn't get buried in medical lees and whatnot, but communicating in clear details uh, what you know. Now, round to E, providing emotional support for that, for that person now or that family. So with regards to E, explore emotions and sympathize, this is where within your script you have to have an empathic response ready to offer this grieving family or this grieving person. Uh, This is an opportunity to explore and and elicit what they are feeling. That can be shock, it can be silence, it can be anger. You can explore where those emotions are coming from. That may be evident that may not be evident there may be circumstances that that are coloring their emotional response to this terrible outcome and then probably the most important intervention here though is time give them time to express those emotions give them time to sit in silence if necessary and Give yourself time to offer the appropriate sympathies and supports at those times.
0: What kind of things can you say when you're offering sympathies? We had mentioned what not to say. You don't say, I know exactly how you feel. Exactly. What kind of things can you say at that point?
3: So often, so the one statement I've used on a number of occasions is, I can't imagine how difficult this must be. This must be terrible for you expressing the fact that you understand that they are going through something that for some people just may be completely inconceivable, uh, that cannot be understood. And then the final letter in the mnemonic, S, is to summarize and then to put together a strategy going forwards. This is probably the most important step in terms of some sort of nuts and bolts consideration or plan. So this would be what's going to happen next. There are going to be a lot of, potentially a lot of questions. Other people might become involved to get more information right now. There are other options I can offer, whether it be pastoral support or a rabbi or whatever your denomination might be. Sometimes people feel that this is the time to talk about funeral homes and whatnot. I've been in a number of situations where they've just wanted to have a very, const- you know, concrete nuts and bolts consideration. What happens to the body now? These are times to put that plan together. But I'll explain to them that I'm still here if there's other questions. Mm-hmm. There's something else that they need.
1: But the one thing he just educated me about was something that pointed out a phenomenal mistake I made five years ago, which is figure out how much they wanted to know. This is after they got the bad news. I, I, I was an emerge doctor about uh, five years ago um. when someone got stabbed to death a 16 year old.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was pretty awful. She was stabbed in the right upper quadrant, the left upper quadrant, and through the sternum by a young adolescent male. So I could see all the internal organs taken out and so forth. And the parents came in and said, what happened? Is she alive? That was her first question, is she alive? So I said, um, I've got bad news. That was the right way to start. I said, uh, yeah, your, your daughter has passed away. I said, what do you mean? I said, she's, she's not alive any longer. She's passed away. And then I made the biggest mistake, and that was the spikes the eye. I started getting into a whole big detailed explanation about CPR, central lines, chest tubes, the liver, the blood. I mean, I, I, I was overwhelmed. So the mother said, experiment the details. Oh, God. So that's the most instructive point you made for me, actually. Figure out how much details they want think like you got to get it across. You've got to show your concern You've got to take your time. It you wouldn't delay that too long But before you go through the whole explanation what happens say How much details do you want? I think that's where I erred. It was a big mistake hmm. I'm sure they remember that event as a not a good event Not just the death of their daughter. I gave them too much details It it, it took a horrible event and made it even more horrible. I think so that's an unbelievably important point.
0: The next topic in this podcast is discharge instructions. Studies estimate that up to a third of ED patients don't fully understand their discharge instructions. This may be due to language barriers, anxiety, the doctor talking too fast, or patient fatigue, or a combination of some of these factors. And we all know that if a patient doesn't understand their discharge instructions, their chances of a poor outcome increases. Jean-Pierre, what pearls and pitfalls can you give our listeners on how best to communicate discharge instructions so that they fully understand and ultimately
3: have better outcomes? You know, this is something that I bring up time and time again with residents and medical students and whatnot, because that's this may actually be the most important portion of the medical record, the, the emergency department record, what happens when they go home. Because unfortunately, emergency medicine is a full contact sport. And despite your best efforts, we're all going to have bad outcomes at some point when someone leaves the department. So making sure that there is some understanding that's there is remarkably important. And often I I think about this this divide between written instructions and verbal instructions. While I think it's a good idea to provide both, if you can only provide one, I think verbal instructions is going to be overwhelmingly the more important avenue to pursue.
0: And the literature does back and up. That's that. what I thought. Yeah. yeah. the The
3: whole idea behind this is that you want to be explicit in terms of what those instructions are. And there's a very simple way to be assured that they understand. And that is have them repeat the instructions to you. Because you can send someone home with a piece of paper, but you can't be certain that they're going to read it or they're going to digest it appropriately. But if they're able to repeat back to you what the instructions are, then you know that that has sunk in at that point. And again, in corroboration with that, again, making sure that that's properly documented the chart is is beyond critical.
0: And one of the interesting things about discharge instructions Which relates to the whole episode that we've been talking about, is that the more that patients understand and have been communicated to through their whole experience in the emergency department, the better that they're going to understand their discharge instructions. Absolutely. So if you've communicated well with them all along the way through their emergency visit, they're much more likely to have a good understanding once they leave of what happened and what's expected
3: you know the one line one segue that i like is something along the lines of you know what you're going home now but you know your care doesn't stop here because this is what's going to happen next and then i go through the instructions
1: and of course i would say keep it simple oh absolutely and i also discuss when appropriate the uncertainty principle i said there's uncertainty in everything we say and do so here's what you have to know it's probably not your heart it's possible it's possible This is a safe approach. If you have any pain like this again, I want you to come back. Now, of course, if it's it's not totally ridiculous, like a, a sore muscle after somebody hit by an elbow, then I'll give different advice. But if there's an area where it could be cardiac pain, I really don't know what's going on, I will have a low threshold for returning. Well, wait, thinking. hold
0: on, Walter. You, you always know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, should that event eventually one day occur? <laughs> yes. I, uh, Just like, like
2: if he dies. <laughs> that, exactly. Yeah. If they should. Die. Right.
1: <laughs> well, no, no. I certainly don't have the heart disease, man. Let me tell you. I've been there. <laughs> that's a podcast in and of itself. It's, yeah. it's, it's what's knowable and what's not knowable. Some things are not knowable. And if it's not knowable, I tell them this is not knowable with certainty. There is uncertainty.
0: I think one important thing when it comes to discharge instructions is that people are anxious and they're very unlikely to remember what you said if you just say it once and you say it quickly. Mm -hmm. My golden rule is the rule of three. Is that any discharge instructions I give to a patient verbally, I repeat it three times. And I take the time to repeat it three times and then I ask them if they understand it and to say it back to me. And that way I know they're going to understand it.
3: Three little words
0: Let's talk take-home points. What are the key strategies we can use at the bedside to deal with difficult patients? First, be prepared. The skills required to deal with difficult patients effectively are counterintuitive and unnatural, as our natural tendency is to counterattack or run away, fight or flight, both of which will be ineffective. Before you even start your preparation, you need to accept the fact That you will have bad days and difficult situations it's a fact of life now on to the first line steps step one get yourself under emotional control don't react be well rested before your shift tell yourself this is going to be a difficult situation but I can handle it and give it meaning know your triggers and acknowledge when your buttons will be pushed say to yourself people need love when they deserve it the least And if you're in a horrible mood, chant to yourself, I'm alert, I'm alive, and I feel good. Once you've got emotional control of yourself, it's time for step two. Step two is to help your patients get emotional control. Use nonverbal communication. Smile, introduce yourself, and address them by their name to personalize the situation. Extend your hand out, speak softly with low tones and open posture, and sit down eye to eye, if it's safe. Once you've got your nonverbal communication under wraps, then it's verbal reflective listening time. Step three don't argue. Search for their agenda. Echo and paraphrase what they say and acknowledge their feelings. Things like, I can see that you're angry, or I can see that you're very concerned, or I can see how you feel that way. I can see how you care deeply about your loved one. Next, reframe by finding out the patient's interest rather than their position. For example, I need your help to find a solution for you. Like Luke Skywalker did for Darth Vader, give the patient a trait that the patient may or may not have. So those are the first line techniques. The second line techniques are three. First is the broken record, then there's acting dumb, and finally there's silence. The broken record is simply validating the person's feelings repeatedly until they settle down. When it comes to the acting dumb technique, the idea is not to play the aggressive person's game. Act like you don't understand. You can say, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to tell me, or help me understand what you're saying, but make sure that you're conveying a non-confrontational body language when you're using this acting dumb technique. The third second-line technique is silence. Give the person time to calm down if needed and get help. Remember that at any time, if you feel threatened or in serious danger, just say, excuse me, and go get security without threatening the person that you're going to get security. Finally, after you've done these techniques and the patient settled down, clearly state a plan of action. This helps prevent the patient from escalating again and gives the person the confidence that a solution will happen. State your intent again so they know that you're on the same page and are committed to finding a solution for them. The other kind of difficult patient that we have to deal with sometimes is the very anxious patient who's been to your department multiple times for the same complaint. Resist the urge to label the patient right off the bat and try to force yourself to go through the entire differential from scratch. Once you're convinced that there's no emergency, it's your job to find out the patient's agenda by asking probing questions like what's your greatest fear, for example, and showing that you care with nonverbal and verbal communication. Avoid statements like, there's nothing wrong with you, and never voice your judgment about the validity of the patient's decision to visit the ED. It won't get you anywhere. So that's how to deal with the hostile, aggressive patient as well as the excessively anxious patient. While there are other types of difficult patients that you'll encounter in the ED, the similar principles will apply. Next in our review of this episode is strategies for breaking bad news. And for breaking bad news, if you can remember the mnemonic spikes, then you're all set. The S stands for setting. The P stands for perception. The I stands for invitation. The K stands for knowledge. The E stands for explore emotions. And finally, S stands for summarize and strategy. So the S, setting, find a quiet, private place where everyone can sit down. For the P, perception, understand the patient's perception of what's happened by asking them. The I, for invitation, ask how much they know. Dr. Himmel's highly emotional example of the 16-year-old who got stabbed to death in telling too much detail to the mother should help you remember this one. Next is knowledge. A short, quick, and concise description of what led up to the death or illness, but don't take too long with this part. Next is explore emotions. Explore what the patient is feeling by saying something like, I can't imagine how terrible this must be for you, and give them time to absorb the shock of the event. Finally, the last S is summarize and strategy, state a plan of action, and allow the patient to see the family if they wish. Finally, in our review of the key take-home points, the very important discharge instructions. Remember that if you practice good communication skills throughout your patient's visit, then they'll be more likely to remember and understand the discharge instructions. Verbal instructions have been shown to be more effective than written instructions if you're only going to be providing one of them. Give the instructions slowly and have the patients repeat the instructions back to you. Consider repeating the instructions a few times and keep it simple. It may be useful to explain the uncertainty principle in situations where you can't be sure of the diagnosis. Now, all of these techniques are exactly that. They're techniques that require practice and repetition. I've found that with practice and remembering to apply these techniques of effective patient communication to every patient that I see in the ED, I go home knowing that I've done a great job with the confidence that my patients will not only be satisfied with their care, but will have a better understanding of their illness and may even have better outcomes.
1: You can never change people directly. You can only change yourself. You know, normal people don't normally act like this. What's your biggest fear? Check your own emotions out the door. If you give something the right meaning, you can withstand anything
3: but I don't think there's ever a role for the emergency physician to judge the validity of someone's decision to come to the emergency department. Be tough on yourself up
1: front, and it's going to be a beautiful day.
3: Probably the most important intervention here, though, is time. Action without a plan is a nightmare. Emergency medicine is a full contact sport.
0: Next time on EM Cases, we're going to have four pediatric ultrasound gurus from across North America explaining their favorite POCUS application in the emergency department. So until next time, take it easy.